Good morning, church. Welcome to worship. I want you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 12 is where we're going to continue our study today. Our title for this message in this series, How to Change the World, is this. It's, How Does the Gospel Look on You? We've spent a lot of time looking at the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how Romans begins. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. So let me remind you of what the gospel is. Uh, the, The gospel is that Jesus died as the punishment for our sins. That he was buried. But that God raised him from the dead. Aren't you thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, as we continue our journey through the book of Romans, we're not, we're not just looking at what the gospel is. We're also examining now the implications or the application of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And, and so we've been saying things like this. Our, our doctrine informs our duty as a follower of Christ. Or maybe we would simply say this, our, our beliefs instruct our behavior. And this is really important because I've learned that religious practice without sound doctrine actually leads to spiritual malpractice. And some of you have been kind of a victim to that, maybe in some of the teaching and preaching settings that you've been up under. You've had some things taught that simply weren't consistent with the the scriptures with the doctrine that we find in God's word. And, and so as a result, you begin to kind of live out some wacky things in your faith practice. And, and it causes your whole journey to be off kilter. So I just want to remind us of where we've come from. For the last few weeks, we've been here in Romans chapter 12 talking about how to change the world. And we started with this great verse, Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God... Oh, I just have to pause when I hear that because I'm so thankful for the mercies of God. I'm so thankful that God doesn't give me what I deserve. Man, he would have struck me down with a lightning bolt long ago if that's the way he operated. But for the mercies, the compassion, the love of God. But for the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you might discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so all of the rest of Romans is going to be instructing us as to what it looks like to live as that living sacrifice, to to give God our best in worship, because we've discovered that worship is is so much more than what takes place in 90 minutes as we gather in a particular place. Worship is our life offered before God for His glory. So how do we live that out, or how does the gospel look on us? are in us. So two Sundays ago, I was worshiping with our mission team in Streatham, England. Man, a great church that we're going to be partnering with there. It was such a blessing, such an encouragement to to be with that group of saints. But they had plans for us. And those plans were after a a quick sandwich lunch uh, to go out on the street and to meet people, strangers, and to, to pray for them and to witness to them. And that sounded like a good idea until... I walked outside, 
And I'm just telling you, after 12 years in Florida, my blood is thin. It was freezing in England. I mean, it was cold. And I began to panic, so I turned to some of our friends there on the team, and I said, uh, your preacher needs to buy a coat. We, we need to find a coat store. And so we're walking toward this high street. It's actually the, the, the longest high road in, in all of Europe. And, and we're walking to this high street where we're going to do this evangelism. And I spot something. It's something, my mom was a hunter like this. And she trained me to, to spot these things. It was the words outlet. And so I, I, knew, I knew that that may be the answer to my problem. And so I walked across the street and straight into that store. And there in that store, I took this very coat off of the rack and I put it on my body like this. And I looked at my friends and I said, how's it look? And my friend Charlie, he had followed me right in there. He said, you look marvelous. <laughs> so I took it right off. I walked right up to the counter and I said, how much is this coat? And that's the best news. It's the best expenditure I've ever made. That coat was 75% off. I got it for 40 bucks. I wore it the whole rest of the trip. It looked good on me. Here's what I've learned. It's the one thing I want you to get from this passage of Scripture. When we present ourselves as a living sacrifice to God, there should be a noticeable difference in how we love others. Thanks to the gospel, we love others as Jesus has loved us. The gospel, the change that God makes in us should look good on us. It should look good in us. Now last week, we continued in Romans 12, and, and we learned that we're not to think too highly of ourselves. Remember that phrase, uh, chapter 12, verse 3, For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. We talked about the importance of humility. In the Christian faith, we need less celebrity, more humility. Today, the Apostle Paul is, is teaching us that community is a good lab for the formation of humility. He's reminding us we're, we're better together, so we need, we need to figure out how to do this thing, how to journey through life, how to make it together. Because better doesn't happen by accident. We, we constantly have to do what it says in Romans 12.1. We constantly have to go to the altar put our lives on the altar and say, here I am, a living sacrifice, renew my mind today so that I'm not conformed to the image of the world, so that I am more transformed into the likeness of Christ. I have to be mindful of that. That's why around our church, you're, you're going to see signs reminding you just of some of the basics all the time. Jesus was asked, what's the most important command? What did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So, so we try to tell you, it really is simple. Love God passionately. Love others intentionally. That's what it's all about. And I try to go deeper. I, I try to dig a little further into my faith. But I'm telling you, I'm still struggling with those two basic things. I wake up most days and I, I'm not loving the Lord enough. And I don't love others as much as I should. And so this passage is one of those that really helps us to get into that and, 
and say, okay, how is that lived out? How does that look on us? It's one thing to talk about it when you, when you gather in a building. But how does it look when I'm back in the classroom or when, when I'm in my office or, or when I'm out on the streets or, or when I'm hanging out with my friends? How does the gospel look on me? That's what I want us to pray about before we read this next passage of Scripture. So, Father, man, so good to hang out in your presence and to worship you and to pray and to sing and, Lord, now even to read your word and to know that you're not a distant deity that can't be connected with, but that you want to be related to. So here we are. <laughs> this is Paul. Got a lot of my friends and family here. And we're just saying, speak to us afresh and anew. I need a fresh word from you. Give us in these few minutes that which we need for today, our daily bread. Teach us that new knowledge as we seek to grow in our understanding of who you are and, and make us more like you. Oh God, nobody here needs another religious service. What a waste of our time if we've come together and we don't walk out different. So let this moment be part of the transformation in our lives. And oh, Father, if there's somebody that doesn't know you, oh, God, I beg you that today would be the day of their salvation. So, Lord, let my words and my thoughts be pleasing to you. Let them not get in the way of your will. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to read a rather lengthy passage of Scripture, but before I do that, I want to give you a little more context. As we read through the New Testament, it starts with four Gospels. These are four Gospel writers inspired by the Holy Spirit of God that are telling us of the events of the life of Jesus. And then we've got this series of, of letters Sometimes if you grew up in church, you heard them called the epistles, and that's kind of confusing because you think, what are the epistles? Are they the wives of the apostles? I don't know. Um, but, but they're letters that were written by these men of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And most of them in the New Testament were written by a guy named, you know his name? Paul. I like that name. Um, they're, they're written by the Apostle Paul, and, and Romans is one of those. So it, it to us is a very consequential, large book in the Bible, but it's important you think of it actually as a letter. So it was a letter to a group of people, a letter specifically to a church in a specific city named Rome. But there are some things we know about ancient Rome, some things that distinguished it even from other ancient cities. For example, let me just show you your historical knowledge. You can probably complete this sentence. All roads lead to Rome, right? That that was a statement, a sentiment that was established because there was this system of highways and byways that led into the ancient city of Rome, unlike even some of the other ancient cities, say Corinth or, or some of the smaller cities that Paul would have visited. So long before Al Gore invented the internet, there was this web of roads that led into ancient Rome. And that meant the church at Rome was diverse. Because people came from everywhere. It wasn't just Jews and Greeks by this point that had gathered. And certainly Paul was addressing that. But it was people from different nations. People that spoke different languages. People that had different cultures. 
And that's why I love Romans, because it reminds me of Mission Hill. Do you know that every time we gather on a weekend, there are about 70 different nations that are represented when we come together. People are being listening to this message in Creole, and, and, and they're listening to this in Chinese, and they're listening to this in Spanish, and then some are just trying to understand what in the world I'm saying in my Southern English. And, and so we've come together from around the world in these different cultures, and, and we have the same purpose. But guess what? We don't just look different. We are different. And, and whoever came up with the idea that birds of a feather flock together, they knew what they were talking about. And, and birds that are different, man, they just begin to peck at one another after a while. And so sometimes there's disagreement and, and diversity brings challenges. And so Paul, at this point in Romans 12, is dealing with that. He, he's telling you how you get along even though you don't all look alike and sound alike and act alike and like the same likes. And so listen to what he says, Romans 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what to do, what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If, you're, if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now remember, there's just really one point to this message. When we present ourselves as a living sacrifice to God, there's a noticeable difference that should take place in how we love others. And thanks to the gospel, we love others as Jesus has loved us. Now, why would I give you just one point after this long passage I've read? Here's why. Paul gives us 30 exhortations. 30 commands. This is how you do it. And I thought a one-point message was much better than a 30-point message. So I just want to give you that one point, but I want to break down some of these other things that Paul gives us about how we live. Pastor Joby Martin calls this the symptoms of a gospel-infected life. This is not an exhaustive list of things that represent what it means to be a follower of Jesus, but it is an extensive list. The heading in my Bible says, marks of a true Christian. In other words, this is how it should look on you if Jesus is in you. This is how the Christian life should be exhibited in your little corner of the world. As Christ followers, we don't simply live by a UBU mentality. Remember? We live by 
you be the you God created you to be. And the you he created us to be is one that's constantly being transformed into the image of Christ, his likeness. So with that in mind, what does that look like? It begins very simply. Look at verse 9. Let love be genuine. Now, in those few words, there's two words I want to focus on. The first is the word love. And as you would expect, this is a love you're going to be familiar with if you've heard the Bible taught much. In the Greek language, there would have been several different words that you could use for love. We don't have that in our, our language. And, and so, for example, I might say, I love my wife. But then I might also say, man, I sure love this Hershey bar pie that she made for me. I don't love them the same way, but that's just the way we describe it in our language. In the Greek language, it was different. There was eros love, which is a physical, sensual love. You don't find that in the New Testament, frankly. There was agape love that Jesus talks about, which is a self-sacrificing, a giving love. That's what's described here. And then you're also going to hear more of a brotherly love. Okay, there's one thing to give your all, to put it all in, to lay it all on the line, to love in that way as Jesus did when he died on the cross. There's another thing to just learn to love like you like each other, just to be a good friend. Well, here he's talking about that all-in love. He says, let your all-in love, as a follower of Jesus, let it be genuine. That's the second word I want you to understand, genuine. You know what that means? Genuine, it means not fake. And I hesitate to do this because all of us can open the scriptures even in an English translation and, and understand God's, God's word, but I, I want you to see something. I want you to see that word genuine in the Greek language because I think it'll jump out to you. It, it's the word anipokritos. And in the Greek language, you know what that means? Non-hypocritical. And it, it would literally describe what a hypocrite was. A hypocrite was an actor who would go on stage, and, and typically in ancient Greece, they would have had a mask on, on a little stick, and typically the actor would have had two different masks. And, and one actor would have played two different characters, putting on two different masks. And here, Paul is saying to a group of people who would have understood that, you don't be like that in your love. Don't be an actor. Don't be a fake in how you express love to one another. Now, why in the world would he say that to a bunch of church people? Listen, way back then, and even still today, it's true, church people fake it. We fake it till we make it. You did it, some of you, since you've been here today. You walked by somebody, they said, how are you doing? And you said, great. And you're not great. We've seen your Facebook, it's not great. You're whining about everything. Your life's falling apart. You're... So here's what happens. Allegedly, I, I, I don't go to these places, but allegedly, it's different if you go to a bar. You belly up to the bar, the bartender asks you, how you doing? You say something like this, man, I had a terrible day. And then by the end of the conversation, now you might have gotten loosened up by some chemicals or something else, but by the end of the conversation, you're just looking at this stranger and you're going, I love you, man. But not in church. In church, we just fake it till we make it. And he's saying, don't love that way. Let your love be genuine. Don't be two-faced. Don't be hypocritical. And then he tells us how genuine love looks. Look at verse 9. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. It's not a mistake that these two things are get together. 
He literally says, be angry about evil. So he's saying you can't genuinely love someone by overlooking the sinful activity in your life. So parents, grandparents, and all of us need to hear this because we've bought into this mentality that to truly love someone is just to embrace what they do, and that is not biblical. I never forget, it was in the 1990s, I was a student pastor and I was sitting under the teacher of a man named Josh McDowell and he warned us of this. He said, we're heading off of a cliff. He said, we're heading into an age where the number one thing, the number one virtue in life is going to be tolerance, but it's not tolerance as we've known it. He said, what we've known tolerance sounds like this. You hate the sin, but you love the sinner. He said, we're heading into a society when that would no longer be acceptable. We're going to be taught that we must not only love the sinner, we must embrace the sin. And friends, that's where we've come in our society. We're taught that tolerance is the number one virtue. But I'm here to tell you today that love is far greater than tolerance. Tolerance is not a biblical value. In fact, our view of tolerance as society teaches it today is really little more than self-comfort. Because what it is saying is we're unwilling to confront that which we know is wrong or untruthful because we don't like the way that it will make us and others feel. We tolerate because we're afraid of offending. And yet scripture teaches that we stand for truth and we love in such a way with truth that we risk losing the friendship because we love the friend. I want you to understand something scripturally. If the gospel is being lived out in me, it's necessarily true that I can't love you and simultaneously let you harm yourself without me caring about it. Just think about how silly some of how we act is. We allow people to walk through what we know are harmful life decisions, and yet out of what we call is love, we Stop warning them about the danger of their direction. You know that our daughter was born blind. She does amazing. She's an incredible young lady. But there are dangers she does not see. And as a father, how foolish and how evil it would be of me if I let her walk into danger without warning her of that danger in her life. I can't let you hurt yourself and not do anything about it and pretend to love you. So I would just remind you, church, we're not called to coexist. We're called to serve and to love. That's hard, isn't it? So how do we do this? He says in verse 10, we love one another with brotherly affection. We outdo one another in showing honor. And what does that mean? That means this all-in love has to go deeper than just surface. It, it can't just be, great, I'm doing great. How are you, great? No, I, I have to go to a deeper level. And that's another way we struggle. How many of you, I'm sure you haven't said this, but how many of you have heard somebody say, well, I love them in the Lord, but I sure don't like them. Come on, raise your hands. Come on, tell the truth now. You're in church. Sure you have. Yeah, that's not Okay. <laughs> And that's what he's saying. He's saying, uh, you've got to love in such a way that you also demonstrate your like for this person. 
That's what brotherly affection is. So here he adds words. It's not just agape love. He brings in that word Philadelphia, phileo, where we get Philadelphia from, the brotherly love. And he brings in this storge love, which means I like you. I'm, I'm attracted to you in this way. So what do you do when you're in that situation? Can I just make it real practical for you? Maybe you need to start praying for some people in your life rather than praying about them. Oh, we pray about people. Lord, do something with old so-and-so. They're about to drive me crazy. When do you start praying for them? I try to be vulnerable as a pastor, so I just want to give you a demonstration in generality. I, I over the last really few years, have, have walked through a situation where, man, it's just tough relationally. And, and through something I heard actually Dr. Charles Stanley say more than 30 years ago, I began to pray this, Lord, change me. That's, that's where you should start. Lord, change anything in me that needs to be changed to make this relationship right. And then I prayed, or change them. <laughs> Lord, change them. Help them to, you know, if there's something in them, change them. And, and then I began to pray, or move them. Or move me. And when you begin to lay it out that way for the Lord... You're, you're then approaching that relationship seriously. And God's not a God of confusion. He answers prayer. And I'm going to just tell you, he's answered that. And he's answered that prayer in a good way, in a way that honors him. So pray for those people. But God, Paul gives us another way, though. He says, outdo them by showing honor. So you got that challenging relationship in, in your close circle or, or maybe among church friends and it just drains you all the time. What if you just make it your mission to out-honor them? Now, this is not natural. It is not. You know why it's not natural? Because we're honor hogs. <laughs> we want all the honor. Just look on social media is crazy. I mean, it doesn't matter age or stage of life. Social media is like a drug that's caused us to think, everybody wants to see a picture of me, so let me give them their daily photo. We're honor hogs. We want everybody to say, look at me, look at me, look at me. And yet all of our scriptural journey says, it's not about us. And so what if you begin to say, I'm going to live in such a way to try to demonstrate with my attitudes and actions that I'm going to out-honor you. So how do we do this? Well, I want to pause and take you all the way back to Romans 12.1. Because if you're tracking with me, this has gotten kind of heavy quick. Because you're thinking like I am. It's tough. I mean, all we're talking about is loving genuinely. And I, I, I struggle to do that. How do we do it? It's that phrase from Romans 12.1. By the mercies of God. Let's say that together. By the mercies of God. By the fact that God loves us. That he's gracious to us. That he doesn't give us that punishment that we deserve. But by his mercy, we have now the ability to be loving to others. So, oh, church, I just challenge you. Love without fakery. Love without hypocrisy. Love in a genuine way. And let me use this as an opportunity to say, I sure love our church. 
I love that I can look out and know some of the things that are going on in your life and, and hearing how God's working in your life and how he's changing you. I, I love watching little Cassie Adams grow up into a young lady and now be one of the best vocalists I've ever heard and sing and worship the Lord on our stage. And now to see her grandparents move here and be able to worship with her every Sunday. I, I love to have that connection I love that my friend Jason and I hang out sometime, and we get to talk about life's challenges and the good things and the bad things, but I get to watch that for really for a long time, I think about 20 years, he's used something that's a passion in his life, and he plays drums in our church on a regular basis. I love hanging out, not recognizing we're not perfect. In fact, this, this isn't a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners like me. But I love hanging out with folks that are on the journey and trying to make it for God's glory. So does it get hard? Yeah. You know what I've learned? Lifetime in church, a lot of good people give up. That's why we got this next verse, verse 11. It says, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Now, slothful, that's one of those words that kind of sounds like what it is. I mean, let's just say that together. Say slothful. Slothful. I mean, you can't say slothful in a happy way, can you? I mean, it, you know what slothful means? It's just lazy. Have you ever seen a sloth? I mean, sloths are cute. But you know what they do? Nothing. They're just hanging out. Like a lot of Christians. I, I, I've been around church all my life, and, and I think maybe of all the things I read in this passage that Christ followers struggle with is they get slothful and zeal. And here's what happens. Somewhere, if you're a follower of Christ, I don't care if you're 82 and you're in the room, if you were a follower of Christ, somewhere in that journey, you were excited, you were zealous about Jesus. But you've gotten slothful in your zeal. And some of you, you were so excited about God, and you would come to worship, and you'd raise your hand, and you would sing loud, and, and then you would look around, and maybe the mature Christians, they're not doing that. They're just standing here like this. And so you thought, well, maybe I should do that. And so you just started standing there like this. And then when you were excited, you, you were going up to pastors and, and you were saying, man, any way I can serve, it doesn't matter if it's behind the scenes or in front of the scenes, I just want to make a difference for Jesus. And you were showing up and you were serving and, and then you begin to look around and you say, there's a lot of people that come all the time and never do anything. Maybe I'm not supposed to be doing this. And you got slothful. And Paul's saying, if, if, if the gospel is on you, you, you don't have that liberty you don't get to be lazy in your passion. You don't get to replace passion for perseverance. Well, I'm just going to hang in there. Hopefully, I'll make it to the end, and then Lord Jesus will give me a back cabin in, in heaven or something. No. It's easy to become slothful in zeal. So how do you combat this? Well, it's right there in the passage. I'm just going to say the words that Paul said. You serve the Lord. You just start giving back. And then he even tells us ways to do that. He, in verse 12 and 13, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. So here's a few pointers for you. You ready? You don't want to be slothful. Number one, choose joy. Just wake up every day and say, I'm not going to let my circumstances determine how I live my life. 
I'm going to choose to be joyful. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Practice patience. That's a tough one. You want some practice? Just get out on 275 during rush hour. That'll challenge you. But just understand that God wants you to grow in those moments of difficulty. And then pray and pray and pray. Prayer makes a difference because it changes you as much as it changes anything else. And then be generous. Be generous. It's no mistake that in God's Word, when it talks about depicting how love looks and stimulating love in our life, that it regularly talks about how we give back to others. Because when God uses us to meet the needs of another person, we become a living picture of the gospel to them. So, I got good news and bad news. The good news is we're halfway done. And, um, and it's good news that the last half is going to be really quick. But the bad news is that's the easy part. Because that's all talking about people that we naturally hang out with. Remember, he's talking to the church. So he's talking to the church at Rome, and he's like, you guys, come on. Stop faking it at church. Be genuine in your love. Like each other. Do nice things for each other. Hang out together. Be passionate about the Lord together. I mean, that should be easy. So remember this. When we present ourselves as a living sacrifice to God, there's a noticeable difference in how we love others. Thanks to the gospel, we love others as Jesus has loved us. All right? But what about those that are outright against us? What about just those people that are, uh, they're just hard. You don't know it, Pastor. They're just hard to be around. Raise your hand if there's somebody in your world that's just hard to be. Now, don't point to anybody in the room, but raise your hand if there's somebody that's hard to be around. Yeah, we've all got those people. Somebody you work with, somebody maybe in your family. But you feel like it's just a constant battle. We're supposed to love them, but they're more like our enemies. I'm not going to reread those verses, but remember how they began? Bless those who persecute you. Bless them. Do not curse them. Then he gives us this long description about how we act toward those we're really tempted to be fighting with. Let me just give you some take home for this. First, choose the bigger and the better way. Choose to be the person that blesses, not the person that curses. Being the person that curses, that's the easy way out. Anybody can be the car that gets frustrated in traffic, and so when somebody cuts off you, what do you do? You speed around them, then you get in front of them, and then you push on the brakes. Anybody can do that. Anybody can give hand signals. Anybody can be a hothead. What, what if you choose to be the positive person in the midst of a difficult situation? Number two, practice sympathy and empathy. So Paul says this. He says, weep with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. You know what I've learned? <laughs> it's easy for me to weep with those who mourn. It really is. I feel sympathy for them. But man, when other people are rejoicing, that kind of gets tough. 
I mean, if your car is breaking down all the time and you see your neighbor pulling into the, gra- the garage with a brand new one, it's hard to say, woohoo, congratulations. If your marriage is struggling and you even come to church and it seems like this couple is just so in love and everything's great, it, it's hard for you to find that joy. But Scripture says when we are loving through the gospel, when we're clothed with the righteousness of Jesus, the the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we're able to sympathize in ways that may not make sense. And there's an example in the Bible. If I were to ask you a biblical, this is a biblical test, wake up. If I were to ask you a biblical question right now, I want to see how many of you know the answer. Quote for me the shortest verse in the New Testament. You guys are scholars. I mean, that's amazing. Why did Jesus cry? Ah. Did, he, did he cry because Lazarus was dead? I, I don't think so. He knew Lazarus was going to die. He even waited, and by this time, by the way, Lazarus stank. I think Jesus was crying because Mary and Martha were crying, and they're his friends. And he was filling with them this compassion for their friend. He knew Lazarus was coming back. He's about to tell him to get those grave clothes off and come forth. But he still was sad with his friends. Third, learn to harmonize. So we empathize, but we also harmonize. So he said, live at harmony with people. Um, I love when our praise team is singing, and maybe you might hear Andrew leading out in the song, but then Franz is over there coming in with kind of one of those deeper tones, and maybe Cassie or Joy's over here, and they're adding maybe some soprano or some alto into it, and, and you're hearing. Or, hey, do y'all ever fall into those video traps on social media? I mean, you minding your business just going through your feed, and all of a sudden there's a video there. And so you watch it, and it finishes, and it's replaced by another video. And the next thing you know is three hours later and you've just watched videos of cats doing funny tricks. Sorry, I'll talk about that with my counselor. But, but I love, sometimes I'll see that video of like a southern gospel singer and they'll all do that four-point harmony and four-part harmony. It's, it's so good. He's saying learn to live in such a way that your life harmonizes with those around you. Now, when I grew up, my dad, the pastor, back then the, the pastors would sit on the stage in the thrones. Y'all remember those? Like They looked like thrones, the throne chairs, big old chairs, bigger than everybody else. Everybody else had to sit on a pew. The preacher got a throne. And so um, my dad would sit up there, and my dad was tone deaf, but I could, uh, I'm not. And so I knew when I became a pastor, I could not sit on the stage because we would have special music. And in the special music, someone would sing a solo. And let me just tell you, I don't know who auditioned everybody that sang solos, but they didn't do the best job because sometimes it wouldn't be harmonizing. The person singing would be off pitch. And I can't help it. I love Jesus and I love you, but my face just makes faces when I hear those off pitches. 
And so I couldn't sit on the stage, but some of us are living our life and, and we're living off pitch. We're not harmonizing. We're not working together to build the relationship God wants us to build. We're, and we wonder why when we walk in the room, everybody's like, ooh. They're making a face because you're off pitch. They know that you're causing disunity, not harmony. Number four, stay humble. This is simple. He just says, be wise and not in your own eyes. Got it? Over and over again in Scripture. Number five, be aggressive about making peace. If you're a Christ follower, you're to be a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper. There's a difference. A peacekeeper may run away from conflict. A peacemaker says, I'm going to do everything within me. Anything that's in me, if it's possible, I'm going to bring peace. And some of you, you're wondering why your life's a mess, but you're not doing everything within you to be at peace with all the people in your circle. It may not be possible, and it may not even be healthy to have a relationship with some of the people in your circle, but you have to do everything you can to be at peace with those folks. Number six, stay out of the judge's seat. You've heard that verse, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Yeah, let him do his job. We've already learned that truth, right? There's a God, it's not you. Stay in your lane. And, and by the way, Here's what I've learned about defense. I don't always practice it, but I know this to be true. Two things are better than me defending myself. Number one, let others speak highly of you. Let others come to your defense. Number two, let God come to your defense. When you take up your defense, you've left nothing for him to do. Number seven, remember your need for the gospel. That's kind of what this whole passage is about. Because we get these 30 exhortations from Scripture and we think, all right, I'm throwing up the white flag. I can't do this. And that's what some of you have done. But all of this should just be a reminder to us, this is why we need Jesus. It's why we need a Savior. That's what we believe, right? We can't do this on our own. We're sinners we needed Jesus to do something that we don't have the ability to do. And yet he does it. And so as a result of that, the way we act, the way we live our lives, it tells a story about what we really believe. So what story are you telling? The way you act, not in this 90 minutes, the way you act on your daily life, that's telling the story about what you believe about God and his word. What's your story? All right. I want to leave you with something before we wrap this up. At the beginning of verse 19, there's a word that I want you to focus on. It's like Paul pauses in the letter and remember who he's talking to. It would be like in me pausing in this sermon and say, all right, Max, Susan. He says this. He says, Beloved. But I want you to think about that word beloved, and I want you to divide it into two words. Be loved. Because I, I really believe when it comes to a long list of things like this that God wants us to do, how we're supposed to look when we're covered with the gospel. He, he wants us to remember that we're loved before we do anything. God's love of you is not based on 
what you do. It's based on who He is. But in light of that love, man, I want to give Him my best. So when we present ourselves as a living sacrifice to God, there should be a noticeable difference in how we love others. And thanks to the gospel, we love others as Jesus has loved us. So, you know, this is a message really kind of only has two applications. One point, two applications. The first is to ask the question, have you experienced the love of God? Has there been that time in your life where you understood the need to ask forgiveness of your sin, trust what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary, and yield control of your life to Him? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus? Have you experienced the love of God? But secondly, because most of us gathered here would say we've done that, what we need to think about is how are we expressing the love of God? Does our life look like the marks of a Christian? That person infected with the gospel that we read about in the book of Romans? If not, by the mercies of God, let's ask him to do some work. All right? Let's pray together. So our heads are bowed and our our eyes are causing us to be in a reverent position. And I, I would just say to you, if you're a follower of Jesus, you know that and you know you've got that relationship with him. Would you just take a couple of moments? Maybe there's some things. I, I, I know when I studied through this, there's some of these that were harder for me than others. And maybe you would just, just do some business with the Lord right now. One of, the, one of the core things we believe in our church is called the priesthood of the believer. That you don't have to have me to go to God or any other pastor or priest. If you're a follower of Jesus, you go straight to him. So go to the surgeon and ask him to start working right now because there's some work that needs to be done probably in how we love. But there's somebody here that's never begun a relationship with Jesus. I know you're here because I pray every week that some will be here. I know God would answer a prayer like that. Also know you're here because I've, I've been around this all my life, and I know that there are some who go through the religious motions, and you've been to church a lot, but you've never truly surrendered control. Maybe you've made that intellectual step of belief, but you've never, you've never been all in. You've never placed you on the altar. If that's you, I just want to remind you that God loves you. Man, I don't care what you've done. God loves you. He loves you so much that his son Jesus Christ died on the cross to take that punishment for everything unholy in your life. For all the sin that you are, that you've done, that you will do. That's why Jesus died. To make it just as if you've never sinned. And then God raised him from the dead to show that there's nothing that he can't do. So the bad things, the powers in your life, they're no problem for him. But you've really got to trust him once and for all to take control. And so again, you don't have to have a pastor or a priest to do that. You can cry out to God right now and you could say something like, I'm a sinner, God. I need to be saved. Oh, 
I receive your forgiveness. Come in and take control of my life. Or if you need a little help, maybe you'd pray a prayer like this. Jesus, I am a sinner. I do need to be saved. I believe you died for me. I know you're alive today. I receive your forgiveness. I surrender control of my life. Change me. Right here, right now. Now tell him thank you. Lord, I pray that as we worship you and as we express in song our desire to live a life that's guided by and changed by you, Lord, that you would move in us and stir us not to just hear these words and then to walk away without action, but to be changed and to do that for your glory. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's continue to worship him in these few minutes. This is my desire.